During the last month or so, Israel has become a hot destination for so many people of such varied backgrounds and interests. It all seemed to get rolling with the quick visit by Elon Musk in late November, who was escorted by Prime Minister Netanyahu to see firsthand the devastation caused by the Hamas attacks on towns and farming villages in the vicinity of the Gaza Strip. Then it became a steady stream of celebrities, and it hasn't stopped. Jerry Seinfeld, Scooter Braun, Michael Rappaport, corporate boards and executives, and non-stop delegations of elected representatives and civil society groups. The abiding motivation seems to be to bear witness to the incomprehensible carnage. To this day, the stench of death remains in places. The singular smell of incinerated life and stuff hangs in the air, and the devastation and silence in empty villages makes it complete. Last week, I heard that the Visegrad 24 crew was in town, and I was so fortunate to grab some quality time with them. Who are they? A newish emerging media force that for now engages primarily on social media platforms. Established in 2020 by two brothers, they were fed up with the rote narratives being fed in mainstream media about Poland and its regional neighbors. But when Russia invaded Ukraine, the Visegrad profile went through the roof. I had noticed their sharp presence at that time on Twitter. Their commentary was pithy, and they shared links to material worth reading. From October 7th to the present day, they have been standouts in their coverage of Hamas, Israel, and the Middle East. These guys are sophisticated and understand that this is not some conflict on the other side of the world that we can put a lid on. They get that what happens in Tel Aviv ain't staying in Tel Aviv. This is a global affair. I sat down last Thursday evening with Stefan Thompson, one of the founders, in his pop-up studio in a Tel Aviv hotel, and met a few of his very friendly and energetic colleagues. They are in Israel for two weeks to engage locals from all communities and try to understand the reality of the place and not just rush off on a disaster tour of the South, which is the focus of most wartime visitors. Not that there's anything wrong with that. We covered... Stefan and I, so much ground, and it was a tough conversation to edit down, but we did meander into some pretty esoteric territory, so I've spared you that. I know that Visegrad 24 is going to become a force in this emerging new media environment, whatever it turns out to be. Stefan tells the story from how and why they began, what's with the name, and where he sees this all heading. Oh, and what made them devote so much time and attention to Israel. Not just for these two weeks, but solidly since October 7th. They are, after all, meant to be focused on Poland and Central and Eastern Europe. But that's the thing. When you have a vision and are grounded in a principled view of the world, then you respond to world events rather than force-fitting them into a sclerotic, obsolete formula, which is kind of what mainstream media does. I know you will find this discussion as fascinating as I did. I'm Vivian Berkovich, former Canadian ambassador to Israel, and now living in the magnificent state of Tel Aviv. Stay with us. Stefan Thompson, so awesome to meet you. 
in the state of Tel Aviv. How are you? Yeah, I'm very good. It's a pleasure to be here, Vivian. I'm very grateful that I have the opportunity to speak on your podcast. I'm looking forward to telling you all the secrets of VisaGrad 24. Can't wait to ask. All right. So I heard a couple of days ago that the VisaGrad 24 crowd was in town and I was clicking my heels because I'm a big fan. I started, of course, noticing you guys on Twitter, sure. spend more time than I should care to admit on Twitter. And you came out of nowhere. We came out of nowhere for Israelis. Well, I go, I go Israeli Canada. So tell me, who are you? Sure. What's the story of Israel? I am a, I'm a half British, half South African. I grew up in the UK. I come from a, a family, a fairly prominent family of emigres who were stuck in, in, in London after the war. They couldn't go back to Poland because of communism. So they were very involved in emigre circles. They were very in, in, involved in building the emigre community. So I grew up in a very Polish home and I grew up with a very South African father. And I felt even though I'm a third, fourth generation raised, born and raised abroad, I nonetheless feel a very strong attachment to Poland. It's something actually that's very similar to Jews who do Aliyah. They do Aliyah generations having not been in Israel for 2000 years, some of them, right? So there is a sort of, I think, a connection there that I think that, that a lot of Jews who listen to this connect can understand where I'm coming from in that sense of feeling and attachment and a very strong sentiment to the homeland. I moved back to Poland, moved back in the sense of I was born and raised in the West, but I moved back to Poland six, seven years ago, where we set up a PR company with my brother. And a few years ago, it was four years, it was January 2020. We were tired of the fact that the story of Poland in the West was being told through the prism of left-wing journalists. And that was the very simple thing that started Visegrad. We decided, hey, social media is available, news is changing, media is evolving. We don't have to have this monopoly of left-wing journalists and activists who have access to Le Monde in France and The Guardian in, in the UK and The New York Times in the USA. We, we can start telling our own story. And Visegrad slowly but surely grew. We were telling stories from Central and Eastern Europe. And the moment we really blew up was the beginning of hybrid warfare with Russia when tens of thousands of migrants were sent to our border by Russia. They were shipped in via Moscow and Minsk. They're being flown in from various airports in the Middle East, and then they were bussed over to the border and literally dumped at the Polish border to destabilize Poland, the European Union, and NATO. And leftist Polish journalists, many of them were saying, oh, it's inhumane to not let these poor refugees in. And we were saying, well, actually, these people are being brought here to destabilize the region. Our, our entire border is being destabilized. And Russia's in the process of this active hybrid war that is using economics because they were halting the supply of gas via the Nord Stream pipelines. They were affecting prices. They were driving prices up. All of this stuff was happening. And obviously, a lot of it was happening on social media. There was a very large concerted Russian effort at destabilizing Western societies. And we came with the, the, a different narrative. We said we presented what we saw from our perspective as the truth. And that has always been the mission of Visegrad 24, to tell the truth as we see it, as we understand it, as best as we can. Obviously, we've made mistakes. The media does generally. It's very difficult to not do that. And then that was the beginning, really, of the adventure where it started growing. And now we're at almost 900,000 followers. On X or Twitter, as it was formerly known, we're at 25,000 on Facebook, 25,000 on Instagram, 20-something thousand on YouTube, 187,000 on TikTok. It's about a billion impressions a month. We are having real life impact. Immediately on October 7th, Thompson and his team understood the gravity of this event, for lack of a better word, for the world. Their coverage was bold, smart, and consistent. 
This was no flash in the pan, and they stayed with it, relentlessly. Their content was and is excellent, easily distinguished from the pack. And clearly, I'm not the only one who noticed. Their numbers have surged since October 7th. Stefan Thompson takes us back to that dreadful day and explains his reaction to the moment that could define the next century on Earth. When October 7th happened, I decided I'm going to take a week. I'm going to give a week of my time. I'm going to tweet away. I'm going to use the platform I have to speak up. And a week later, I realized that unbelievably, not very many people were speaking up. So three months later, it was unbelievable. I know. Vivian, it was unbelievable. It was to see this massacre happen and to see the denial in real time. It is, I have no words. And then to see this complete and utter lack of understanding of the region, of the neighborhood, of the fact that Israel's neighbors want to destroy it. But to come and outright the denial thing. In real time. In real time to come and say, you're making it up? Yeah. Well, why would you make that up? Why, why wouldn't you make that up? And there's forensic evidence and there's testimonials and... And the hostages. The Hamas is literally using the hostages to negotiate. I, too, will never forget that moment. I happened to be in Toronto on October 7th and was awakened at 7.30 in the morning to the news that there was war in Israel. Over the following hours, I began to absorb the gravity and shock and, like so many, was horrified and terrified and disbelieving. And am, to this day. How could this happen? Where was the army? I also knew in my bones that this was a seminal moment in history, a defining turning point. The good times are over. We Jews, we are back in the Warsaw Ghetto, and we need Molotov cocktails now. In my bones, I knew that this is going to be bad, really bad. And it is, and we are still in the early days, unfortunately. The world turned upside down overnight on October 7th. Stefan and I had a long chat about that moment and the clarity we both had in real time. I very consciously decided that I was going to speak out on October 7th, fearlessly, because I believe that we are way past politesse. We are at war, a war on the Jews, Israel, and the West. I also found that when I did speak up, others were emboldened. I know that for a fact because many reached out to me privately to express this thought, and I expected that Thompson had had similar encounters and felt he may be influencing perspectives out there. I really hope we did. I really hope we did. Well, look at the way you've grown. I mean, have it. Our reach has grown. A lot of it is driven by hate. A lot of the impressions that we do get are, I'm going to be fully honest, yeah, you... a lot of the impressions come from Muslim world. You are talking about 2 billion people, roughly 2 billion people, increasingly online, increasingly active, increasingly wealthy. That is a real transformation from, I think, the... I remember as a, one of my formative memories of mine was going to protest in 2003 against the Iraq war in London. I still think that war was wrong. I was obviously a child. I was taken by my parents. As a 10-year-old, I didn't really have much of a geopolitical insight to provide. But that formative memory of actually it was the West, the Muslim world at the time had no voice. And it does have a voice now. And that voice online is very strong. 
and very aggressive towards the West. And actually it's to me, having been in that protest as a 10 year old with yeah. my parents, I, I have a sense of most Western Westerners didn't want to send military. We didn't want to send Americans and Brits to die in Iraq and Afghanistan. We had no fight with these people. And, but these people hate us and they hate you. And I, I look at the views now, it's the amount of death threats. I stopped counting after a thousand. I sent them to the Ministry of Interior. I, it was so many death threats. I sent them, they said, do you want protection? I said, I was sending them to you to see if, can you just, to just check if some of them are realistic. I wouldn't want to wake up with a knife to my friend. Right. But I said, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want protection. I, I believe I'm going to be okay in Warsaw. But it was unpleasant. A thousand death threats. And that was the first two weeks of the war, maybe. It's now, I've, I've stopped counting. I've stopped looking at the DMs. And vile anti-Semitic graphics that were sent to us. Vile images of me where they add a keeper and they increase the size of my nose. But suddenly, this realization of, oh, damn. When my Jewish friends were telling me about these things and I didn't quite believe that it was that bad, suddenly I now see it. Because I've lived that anti-Semitism. As in, one of, our, one of the girls who manages our social media couldn't take the messages and the comments that were being sent. She came to me crying and said, stop reading this, it's not about you. You can't cope with this, you've got to stop reading it, ignore it. Are you concerned with what is going on in Israel? This is not just another crisis. State of Tel Aviv is committed to delivering superb and candid analysis, and we're offering a limited-time subscription special, a 33% discount from the regular fee of $90 annually, one year for only $60. Stay informed and stay connected with State of Tel Aviv. We are a reader-supported enterprise. If you value our work, please subscribe. It makes a huge difference. Stateoftelaviv.com. All one word. Now, back to the podcast. Let me ask you this. Yeah. Because, you know, our listeners won't know that I was just interviewed by Stesha, sure. which was really a lot of fun. Thank you. I appreciate To so many great issues. And now I get to ask the question. Sure. And one of the questions you asked me was to try to explain this virulent hatred that in my view, has always been there, mm. but that has erupted and is just ferocious in the West, but everywhere. And you're telling me now about the fact that much of your traction online and social media comes from 2 billion plus Muslims. Oh, I would say a solid 30% of my impression not from feeling that. a lot of love from them. So tell me, to what do you attribute the hostility? The most compelling theory that I have heard is that whatever the enemy of the day is projected on Jews. And if the current is capitalist, Jews are accused of being communists. If the current of the day is communism, they're accused of being capitalist and vice versa. I also think- We are you're, versatile. You are incredibly versatile and obviously your diaspora is incredibly successful. And you are over, I saw the statistic of Nobel Prizes out of 900 and something Nobel Prizes, about 200 and something have been won by either Jews or people with a Jewish parent. and. You, you look at that, it breeds, it breeds envy, it breeds, it, it, it does. The thing is, to me, as I look at the Jewish community, the Jewish diaspora, and I look at it as a poll, the Poles have a large diaspora. I look with nothing but envy on your diaspora. When I look at your diaspora, I think to myself, how can we emulate the Jewish success? 
I don't look at it and think, oh, screw these people. They're more successful than us. Let's try and take away their stuff by force. It was a, how did they do it? How, how did they get 200 and something plus Nobel Prizes? I look at it with admiration. I think to myself, why are Polish people abroad not more successful? I would love nothing more than to see my people succeed and do well abroad. And I'd like them to stick together and do business together and succeed together. So to me, that, that anti-Semitism is incomprehensible because I come from a very different I, I look at the, that with su in such different eyes. I, there's no envy in me in a negative sense of the word. I am envious in a kind of positive way of, hey, that it is, it's incredible what you have achieved as a minority and that your diaspora has achieved incredible things. How, Viv, you'd ask me, how do you explain the progressive, so-called progressive left turning on Western Jews? And I'm like, we, they never had us. They never embraced us. They never really wanted us. And we're always the convenient scapegoat. So I don't have an answer. I just want to hear. I, I, I don't really have an answer yeah. either, but I would take it further. I, I would say that I also, I don't look at this, my involvement in this conflict, and we have generated several billion impressions. I do believe that Visegrad, and without self-boasting, we, we have been an, a very influential voice. And we've mm -hmm. been one of the few non-Jewish voices. And I mean, something I'm incredibly proud of the reasons I'm doing this are not entirely altruistic. I do, there is self-interest in this. Yeah. And the self-interest is, it's not, you are the canary in the coal man, as you said. And it's not, it doesn't end with you. You know, I'm next. So I'm not, there's a lot of rational thought going into this saying, I don't want the West to go through what Israel is. Obviously, Israel is part of the West, but I don't want Western countries to be next in line if Israel falls whatever happens next is not going to be pleasant for us. It's that classic poem of first they came for the socialists, I wasn't a socialist, I didn't speak up. But I am slightly, there is a part of shame in me that, that so few people have spoken up. I really did. I believed that I would be involved for a week, that I would take a, a, a week break from running my PR company and just spend my time tweeting, posting, messaging, doing a few interviews here and there, and then I'd be able to go back to my life. And, and suddenly to realize, actually, no one's saying anything. As a few Jewish activists doing Hasbara, <laughs> but actually, where, where are the big voices aside from Douglas Murray? I haven't seen them. And then to see, the, the, to see, and we talked about this just earlier, but to see the protest marches across Western capital cities, to see hundreds of thousands of people march, effectively in support of Hamas, to march for that in Western democratic societies that have given them the very freedom to go out and march and to spit at the face of essentially 2,000 years of Christendom. It took 2,000 years. And if you include it, if, you, if we talk of Judeo-Christianity, we're talking of 3,000 plus years. It took us 3,000 years to build these societies that are the absolute pinnacle of wealth, freedom, of equality. It doesn't get better than this. It was, we talked about the 90s being that blessed era of all the fruits of hard work, of hard capitalist work, of accumulation of capital, but also of accumulation of the of spiritual wealth, because I do believe there is an accumulation of those centuries of prayer, that they add up. It, it all adds up. There is a tally that is kept, and we're just squandering it. We're living on debt, and we're living on borrowed time. And here we are, we've invited the enemy within the gates. We've literally dragged that Trojan horse into our capital cities. And most people don't even realize the enemy is with it. Thompson, his brother, and Visegrad 24 have been criticized at times 
for being a mouthpiece for extreme right-wing political interests. No point in beating around the bush. And I raised this issue with him at our next segment. He explains, when you disrupt things, you tend to attract all manner of attention, including the negative kind. I'm judging Visegrad on the product I consume in the areas I know, and I think it's outstanding. Oh, and like me, I expect that you're wondering about the name, Visegrad. A very cool story. So Visegrad is, this is an amusing story because when I was building Visegrad right at the start, we were looking for names and there was an alliance from the 14th century between the King of Poland, King of Moravia and the King of Hungary. And it took place in a town called Visegrad. And in, in the 90s, there was when communism finally fell, these four countries came together and said, hey, we should create a format of cooperation and came up with the name Visegrad based on the town, based on this 14th century meeting. And we thought to ourselves, what's the best name to give us that gives us some sort of legitimacy, but also that reflects the fact that we didn't want to be just about Poland. Now that you're raised, you know, this promise of this really amazing kind of coming into its own Poland, we also hear a lot about the kind of Poland going very illiberal, extreme right, anti-democratic. The last elections proved prove that wrong. And, and I want to just throw in there too, because one of the criticisms that mm. I've heard about Visegrad, and for the life of me, I can't see the basis for it, but that you're some kind of far-right conspiracy theorist media outlet. So I actually, the other day, when I knew I was going to be sure. talking to you, I went online, I went back in your feed, and I'm like, no, not vibing it, not seeing where this comes from. I still don't see it. So I'd like you to address first, in this kind of age of this new, great, emerging Poland, Mm. is the threat of kind of illiberal authoritarianism real, and does it concern you? The threat is always real. There is always a genuine threat of, of radicalism, be it from the far left or from the far right, and I'm very conscious of it. I understand it well. I have a very deep fear that the current left, radical left push is going to breed an extremism on the right that I'm very cautious of. I am a conservative myself. I have moved in right-wing circles for many years. I am very conscious that there is a switch in Europe that where things can go very nasty very fast. And I'm afraid of it. And I'm very afraid that the left is pushing people towards that. I also, the accusation comes from the fact that there's allegations a far left website accused me of taking money, a government grant from the Polish government, a law and justice government. It was the first government since the fall of communism in Poland to have two mandates without a coalition. There was nothing illiberal about them. There's many things that we been criticized, including their attempts at legal reforms. I wasn't ever a vocal advocate of this government. I've stayed fairly clear of Polish politics myself. Visegrad regularly posted quotes from our prime minister, from our minister of defense, especially when the full-scale invasion of Ukraine happened from Russia on the 24th of February 2022. But broadly speaking, we are still tweeting quotes of the current prime minister and quotes from the current minister of foreign affairs and quotes of the minister of interior. We didn't get any money from the British government as Visegrad 24. My next step after this is I really, some of the people that I've met here, some of the friends that I've made, I would really very much like them to come to Poland. And I think that we have to work on this Jewish-Christian alliance and that your experiences and the lessons that you have learned are things that are very important for the West. I think that many of the things that you have succeeded at of having a nation of strong borders, a people that respects its heritage, its culture, its religion, 
a, a people also who are full of life. To me, the, the way to save the West, a lot of it lies through a return to God. I do think that the a lot of the endemic problems that we're seeing are related to the West abandoning God and abandoning organized religion and many of the safeguards that had been put in place and that had taken centuries to put in place have disappeared. And I think a society without a God will believe in anything. And I think that actually this is something that Israelis and, and Jews understand. And obviously, including the secular ones, that there is, despite many Jews that I've met here in Tel Aviv, being secular, there is a there is an innate understanding that there is an order and a sense and a purpose that comes from God in a very simplified way. There is no question that since World War II, Western societies have turned away from organized religion, in large part a response to the horrors of that dreadful conflict. How many times have we all wondered, if there is a God, how could such demonic events have happened? The loss of faith and belief have been profound and lasting. And to vastly oversimplify things, the outcome has been a relativist culture, one in which any set of beliefs can be justified, since there is no bedrock, no foundation, nothing is objective. We are living in a time of a breakdown of authority, standards, and order. Thompson is very much a product of another era. He quite openly embraces his traditional privileged upbringing, moving among elite intellectual societies, attending posh and pricey private schools in the United Kingdom. He is also a man of faith and believes deeply that our loss of guidance that organized religion once provided is the reason for so much of the chaos we see around us. There is a strength that comes from faith, and there is a a duty and a responsibility that comes from believing in something bigger than ourselves. Stefan Thompson, thank you for your support. When I look forward to seeing this series of Visegrad videos, films, whatever from Israel. Enjoy the rest of your time. Thanks so much. See you in Warsaw. See you in Warsaw. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. We'll keep the dispatches coming as frequently as we can. If you like what you're hearing, please take a moment, rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can check out our full library of articles and podcasts at our website, stateoftelaviv.com. State of Tel Aviv is an independent media venture, and we rely on subscribers to support our work. If you are not yet a paying subscriber, please consider taking the plunge today. Each person really does make a huge difference, especially in these very challenging times in Israel, it is important that you stay informed and current and seek out a range of perspectives. This is a pivotal moment in Israeli history. It is not a time to be passive and disengaged. Thanks for sticking with me to the end. I'm Vivian Berkovich, signing off from deep inside the state of Tel Aviv. <laughs>